Hear the word of the Lord. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of, skull, of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide uh, what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so we might see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Your word which you tell us is living and active. Your word which both convicts and comforts the hearts of man. I pray that you would do that in us this morning by the power of your spirit. Speak to us. We need to hear. We are desperate to hear from you. Speak to us this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, as we come into Holy Week this week, uh, this last week itself has been kind of a hard week. Um, you, hopefully, many of you saw the letter that I sent out to the church and the school this week, but uh, this week began, this past week began uh, horribly. On Monday, you probably heard, Monday morning, a sister church of ours in Nashville, Covenant Presbyterian Church, who, which also has a school, was uh, brutally attacked, and three young children were murdered, and three adults were as well. And I wrote a letter to the church and the school about this particular moment because this one hits a little closer to home. It's not hard to see the similarities between us. And uh, when you look at the discourse that follows events like what happened on a Monday and, you know, just our current moment, cultural, cultural climate and, and history in our country, um, the, the world we live in, it, it, just, it can't help but feel like the world we live in is a bit chaotic in this moment. Everything feels a little bit out of control. Uh, it's, it's like we're, we're riding a bike too fast down a hill and we're getting those speed wobbles and we're about to, to crash and burn. And you can't help but wonder, well, who's in charge of everything anyway? 
Right? It feels like we're almost living in the time of Judges. If you've never read the book of Judges in the Bible, it's the reoccurring theme was there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own, in their own minds. It feels like that kind of moment, that everyone's just doing what's right in their own minds and it's chaotic. It's not working very well for us, is it? Because the truth is we need order. We need someone to bring order. We need more than just a, a judge to rule. We need more than a president and in, in the human systems of, of government. What we need is a king. We need a monarch, someone who can actually act, but not a king like other nations, which is what the Israelites looked for in the time of judges. They, they wanted a king like other nations. We need a king who is better than any other nations could possibly have. We need, we need a king who doesn't just rule with his laws, but a king who rules the hearts and desires of humanity. We need a world, a, a king that's otherworldly and and more than just a king, we needed him to bring his kingdom with him too. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. All right, this is his mission on earth. This is why he was born. This is why he performed miracles. This is why he called disciples to himself. He has come as a king. He has come to claim his crown, to claim his throne, to claim his land. He's come to claim his people, to restore order out of chaos. Right, much like in Genesis 1, you find the order coming from chaos formed from the formless. This is what he has come to do again. And we need that. We need new creation. We need a king. And this is actually what we see in this passage this morning. We see Jesus taking up his mantle as the king. Coming, claiming the throne of David. In this morning's passage, what we actually see is the coronation of Christ. And, you know, the coronation of, of a king is, is a ceremony that seals the deal, much like a marriage ceremony seals the deal of a, of a marriage. And in this Palm Sunday, we find that, that his coronation wasn't really uh, when he walked into town on, on a donkey and palm branches were waved in front of, front of him. That was a prelude to his actual coronation, which we find in our passage this morning as he marches to the cross, which is not what you would expect a uh, a king of, the king of kings, like the Lord of lords coronation to look like, except that this is Jesus and he doesn't tend to do the things that we expect him to do. He's, his kingdom is the upside down kingdom, it's backwards. And so maybe we should expect his coronation as king to look a little different too. And so as we consider this coronation of the king this morning, what we're gonna find borrowing from many others is the two sides to his coronation that reveal the true majesty of our king. We're going to first see the shame of his coronation, and second, we're going to see the glory of his coronation. So first, the shame of his coronation. You know, with modern eyes, it's, it's hard to see the, the coronation happening here in this passage because we've, we don't live under a monarch. Um, we live in a democracy, and I doubt anyone's probably been to a coronation ceremony. And so, uh, but when you know what happened in the ancient days in, in, in coronation ceremonies, uh, you begin to know what to look for in this passage, and you, and you begin to see that this is an, an anti-coronation happening. It's a mock coronation. At first, we see this set up just in the, the language of this passage. It's just laced with king language, constantly, over and over. Verse 18 says, hail, king of the Jews. Verse 26 tells us he is the king of the Jews again. Verse 32, let the king come down. This whole passage is about Jesus being king and about his coronation, and he receives the shameful counterpart to a normal coronation ceremony. And in the ancient world, a coronation service would begin with the ritual of crowning and anointing. So this ceremony would traditionally, it would take place in a palace. It would take place with the, with the military present. 
And this would kind of signify that the king is head over the military and it also signify that the military and the general submission to the king, that they would, they would fulfill his, his orders. And this is normal. Uh, and this is actually what we find here at the beginning in verse 16 to, to, to 18. It says this, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. So this, this is all happening in the palace in front of the military, in front of the battalion. And they placed a cloak on him and they placed a crown on his head and they salute him, hail king of the Jesus. But instead of anointing with oil, what do they anoint him with? Their own spit. Instead of a crown of gold, he gets a crown of thorns. Instead of a salute of reverence, he gets a salute of mockery, kneeling in fake homage. We're witnessing a coronation of shame. Next, the king would normally be escorted to a sacred place and there'd be a private ceremony. And in this place, he would be clothed in royal garments and seated upon his throne. And we see this happening here too in verse 21. It says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And so Jesus, again, he has an escort, but it isn't someone that's special and revered, it's Simon. Someone we don't know anything about, and Simon is one of the most common names of the time. It's an average person on the street. And instead of being taken to a place that's sacred, to somewhere private, where is he taken? To Golgotha. The place of the skull, the place of death, the place of desecration, the place of shame, not a place of royalty, not a place where you expect to find kings. And we see this continue in verse 24 to 25. It says, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which one each should take. And it, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. So instead of getting royal garments placed on him, he stripped of his garments and it's important to note, he, he likely didn't have nicely placed loincloth covering his nakedness in just a particular way like you see in many pictures depicting the cross and the crucifixion. You know, uh, many pictures that people try to recreate depicting this moment, I think, can underestimate the vileness of what's happened. It's almost like they're too serene to capture this moment. And they, 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 they tend to hide some of the darkness. But it's most likely that Jesus hung on the cross naked, shamed. And you remember, since the fall of, of Adam in the garden, nakedness is almost exclusively associated with shame in Scripture. And, and this is what you find. You find here that the second Adam, hanging fully exposed, bearing the full weight of Adam's shame on full display for the world to see. It's ugly. It's brutal. And instead of being near honored guests, who does he have flanking his left and his right? He has criminals. Instead of his coronation ending with him sitting on a throne, it ends with him hanging on a cross. The cross which itself is a symbol of shame. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, we read in the scriptures. And there he is, our supposed king, shamefully exposed, cursed on a tree. This is a shameful coronation. But the shame actually doesn't end there. You know, after a normal coronation, there would have been a grand feast and people would come forward and praise the king and his greatness. Look with me here at verse 29. It says this, and those who passed by derided him. 
wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So instead of a celebration of praise, it's become a spectacle of of shame, of mockery. They're saying, save yourself, Jesus. If you are the king, do something about it, prove it. And then then we'll believe. If you just do it, then we'll believe. You come down and and we'll believe. But no, no, they wouldn't. They didn't believe Jesus when he calmed the storms. They didn't believe in Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They didn't believe in, G- in Jesus when he healed the sick and the lame. Their words are mockery. This is the most shameful coronation the world has ever seen. Think about God incarnate, Messiah, king of the cosmos, the one earthly king who would actually deserve to be lavished with praise and honor and glory. is treated like a common criminal. But does it really surprise us at this point in all of Jesus' life and ministry that Jesus' coronation might look a little different than we've come to expect it to, than it looks in the world? Does it surprise us by now that things are not always as they seem? Because Jesus, in, in taking his throne in this manner and using this shameful coronation service to, to, to take his throne and doing, doing the unexpected, what he does is he actually gives us a new vision. He redefines what we should expect in a king. He redefines the nature of, of his kingdom and, and what it means to be his people because Jesus re- refuses the normal categories of glory and just like he showcased his authority, actually in his submission, as we saw last week, he showcases his glory in his shame. This is the beautiful twist of the cross, death to life, shame to glory, all the ugly things being undone through the most ugly thing we could imagine. And so we've seen the shame of his coronation. Let's take a moment and look at the glory of his coronation, the glory of his coronation. Because there is glory in this service. You may have noticed it, but there's, there's a common theme to the insults given to Jesus in this passage. Verse 29, right, save yourself, right? Save yourself and come down from the, the cross. Save yourself, Jesus. The insult is the inability for Jesus to actually do anything about his situation, which makes sense because you know, one of the duties of, of the king is to protect his people from all sorts of threats. And if the king was weak and couldn't defend his own self, how could he possibly defend and protect those around him? How could he protect his people if he can't protect himself? And if he's also claiming to be Messiah, king, uh, he should be able to come off that cross. So the point is that if you can't save yourself, King Jesus, oh Messiah, then how good of a king can you be? But what if, what if what they don't see is that in order to save his people, he actually cannot save himself? And we see this this coming through a little bit more here in verse 30, right? It says this, save yourself, come down from the cross. What we know is that he actually could come down from the cross if he wanted to, right? We've seen Jesus' power and authority on full display. He has the power. But if he did it, it would mean he could not save you and I. If he's gonna save others, He cannot save himself. And we see this kind of push to the edge here in verse 32. It says this, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. This is the final time they asked him, come down, mocking him. Then we'll believe you. The question happens again, what what will Jesus do is the question we have. What will our newly crowned king choose to do? Will he come down from the cross? Or will he remain to save his people? Will he save himself or will he remain to save us? 
And our eternity lies in the answer to that question of what will Jesus do? Our hope in a world filled with darkness rests on the decision by our newly enthroned king. You know, one theologian, Lightheart, points out that in a way, Jesus is actually experiencing the same temptation as Adam did in the garden. Right? The Jewish leaders and robbers all join in this satanic temptation here. Jesus is, is, is Adam at the tree, but instead of, he's being, instead of being at a tree that's bearing fruit, he finds himself in a tree as a means of execution. And the temptation of Jesus is, is the same temptation of Adam. Has God really said, is God really good? Did God say he would rescue? Where is he? What kind of father would lead you to the place of death and put you to death? Can you really trust a father like this that would leave you here, broken and bruised on the cross? This is the temptation. But Jesus doesn't give in to it, does he? He stays on the cross because he trusts that this cross is actually the proof of his sonship, that it's actually the proof of his kingship. He trusts that the cross is actually not his greatest shame, but that it is actually his greatest glory. He trusts that his humiliation is actually his exaltation. Right? His glory is in his death because it is in his death that you and I actually receive glory. And the truth is we experience this same temptation too because it's in suffering that we're tempted to doubt the Father's words. It's in our moments of darkness that we're tempted to, to doubt his goodness and his love. It's in weeks like this where the violence of our world comes to our doorsteps that we're tempted to give up, to give in, to despair, to give up on our king. Because we hate pain, right? We hate the darkness. But it's only in the cross that we find that with all its pain, with all its shame, with all its humiliation and mockery, it's not just a place of shame, but it's also the place of our glory too. It's the place where death and darkness come to die. Right, the path to glory and new creation doesn't avoid blasphemy and destruction. It actually faces it. It looks it in the eye and it endures it and it defeats it. So that he can make all things new. So that he can take his throne as the king, as the second Adam, bringing restoration to all things, undoing all the sad things. And this is what he shows us. That the things of shame have actually been transformed into the things of glory. And this act on the cross, what happens? These crowns of thorns become his glorious crown of, of gold. The insults are turned to praise. A cross is turned into a throne. The king's shame actually becomes his glory. All hail King Jesus. He is on his throne. His throne is forever. And it's actually only through this cross that you and I can learn to have hope. And listen, there's a, there's, a, there's a hard truth in this that says if God can make this shameful act of the cross, which was done to his son gl glorious, but if God can turn the, the moment of the crucifixion, which is so shameful, into something glorious, if he can do that with Jesus, then he, can, then he can transform what happened in Nashville to something glorious as well. And if he can do that with Jesus, and if he can do it in Nashville, then he can do it in your own life too. In fact, this is what God excels at, turning shame to glory, taking the, the voidless and the empty and, and making it full and fruitful. Turning your mourning to dancing, your sadness to joy, which I know in moments like this week, these can sound like empty words. Families are burying their loved ones. They can seem like empty words in times of mourning and sadness until you remember what our king did with the shame on the cross. Death to life. And now those that died will never taste death again. Shame 
to glory. Our God is the only one who can do this, who can take your mourning, your deep sadness, your tragedies in life and turn them into dancing. He's the only one who has the power and authority to undo all sad things, not by ignoring those sad things, but entering the place of sadness, entering that place of darkness and destroying it. He's the only one that can do this for you. This is the work he has come to do. This is the work he is doing right now. And the cross teaches us that he doesn't do it by avoiding it, but by entering it. He doesn't avoid the sadness, but enters the place of sadness. He doesn't find a way out of being shamed, but willingly endures the shame so that you can share in his glory. This is the king that we're called to rest in. This is the king that we're called to trust in the midst of darkness, to submit our lives to, even when we'd rather, not, rather do what we want to do in any given moment, because he has proven himself to be the one king that you were made to submit to. The one true king, the good king, the king who loves you, the king who desires to take your sadness and your places of mourning and your places of rebellion and those places that you hide from him and transform them. The question for us is this. Will you trust Jesus with the corners of your life and the corners of your heart that you try to control yourself? Will you trust Jesus to come in and take control and sovereign, sovereignly control your life? Or will you, let King Jesus, will you let King Jesus chip away at the old man, the old Adam that still tries to hold back from the king? This is the question that we have to wrestle with. And I think what, the, what we see in the cross, what we see in his coronation, he is the one that can be trusted with even those deep, dark places, those sensitive places, those hurtful places. He is the one that you want in those places, caring for you turning your sadness to joy. May we be a people who learn to lean on our great king, to give ourselves to him, to trust him in our times of sadness, to trust him in our places of hurt, who believe that he is the one who's turning chaos to order, establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your goodness. We give you thanks for your glory. Father, where we struggle to submit, where we struggle to see you as king in our lives, we pray that you would enter those places, that you would help us to know that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are there in the midst of darkness, in the midst of despair, that you are good. Would you transform our lives? Would you give us, would you give us deeper dependence on you for all things? And would you bring this whole world under your order, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.